Hey, you're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode four, Esoteric Nazism Reexamined, part one, or Sissy Hypno for Hitler. Today I'm recording from the Pasivalk Military Hospital where I've been spending some time recuperating, you know, recovering my nerves, things of this nature. So I would like to introduce the Esoteric Nazism Reexamined series. We're not done with Sullivan and Cromwell, uh, but this series is going to look at and perhaps challenge some of the assumptions and conventional understanding of what Nazism actually was. We're going to look at some under-examined periods of Hitler's life. We're going to look at Nazi financing, the Thule Society, and a host of other topics. Now, this isn't going to be a revisionist history. The Nazis were, of course, fascists, which is what global capital pulls out when they're not certain they're winning the class struggle. I'm not going to challenge any of that. But since the U.S. school system probably overteaches World War II, and yet everyone seems so smug about what they think they know about Nazis, I think the series will be useful. And it should go without saying that this will be a critical, hostile look at Nazism. We're not looking to uh, re-examine and reappreciate it here. And in this episode in particular, I think fans of both esoteric Nazism and Sissy Hypno will probably be disappointed. Let's start, as always, at the beginning. As the National Socialist German Workers' Party rose in popularity between 1919 and their seizure of state power in 1933, they told compelling stories. The Nazis highlighted real corruption and abuses of power, but then blamed them completely on Marxists and Jews. One story in particular gripped people and was a crowd favorite. Early rallies and articles told a story that Hitler had experienced a form of divine revelation during World War I. The Muchner Post published an article in 1923 describing how Hitler laid in a military hospital, and I quote, It is said that he was stricken by a kind of blindness, and he was freed from this blindness by an inner ecstasy, which showed him the way to free the pan-German people from the materialistic enslavement by Marxism and capitalism. He, Hitler, sees it as his duty to free his people. The whole will of this man is determined by the belief in this messianic mission. It's easy to see why this story would compel people. It sounds like something you might hear at a Pentecostal tent revival or faith healing. The Nazis rightfully understood the power of the story as told a certain way. They also understood the power of suppressing certain facts from that story that tended to undermine their position, such as the fact that Hitler was stricken with hysterical blindness rather than a physical ailment to his eyes and that he was cured by hypnosis. Hypnosis, which may have intentionally or unintentionally planted in him the notion that he was destined to save Germany. The Nazis emphasized that Hitler suffered real blindness due to mustard gas and denied that hypnosis was used at all. The Nazi party would obfuscate, lie, and ultimately kill to cover up the truth. Let's get into it. After World War II, Fritz Wiedemann was called to give evidence in the Nuremberg trials. He was a unique person because he served as a diplomat and was therefore somewhat removed from 
direct complicity in war crimes that many of the other higher officers in the Nazi party were involved with. He also knew Hitler longer than most, almost all of the other Nazi leaders, having served with him directly as an officer in Hitler's regiment during World War I. He was also one of the very first uh, to join the Nazi party very early on. So he knew Hitler uh, for a much longer period of time. So when Wiedemann first met Hitler, Hitler was 27 years old and was serving as a company runner at the time in the army. Uh, when Wiedemann testified at Nuremberg, he was questioned by the only German-born Jew lawyer named Robert Kempner. And I read a portion of the transcript here. Kempner. Hitler was a lance corporal, is that right? Wiedemann. Yes. Kempner. Can you explain why you did not consider him suitable for promotion? Wiedemann. Hitler was an excellent soldier, a brave man. He was reliable, quiet, and modest. But we could find no reason to promote him since he lacked the necessary qualities required to be a leader. Put simply, Hitler lacked the personality to ever become a leader. At this juncture, the entire court broke out in laughter as it seemed absurd on the face of it that anyone would consider Hitler lacking in leadership potential. However, Wiedemann later said, Kempner thought he had made a good joke, yet what I had said was perfectly true. When I first knew him, Hitler possessed no leadership qualities at all. What I and others have postulated is that this leadership potential was hypnotically induced and this is not to minimize or explain away all of the many forces of history that helped the Nazi party come to power. Hitler being hypnotically taught that he needed to save Germany can simultaneously be true while we also maintain a class-based analytical understanding of history. To understand all this, we need to go back and understand what actually happened to Hitler at perhaps the most sympathetic period of his life, which is when he was a victim of a war crime. That is to say, when he was gassed at the Battle of Courtrai. As we will see, there are three versions of the event, and it becomes a matter of very great importance to the Nazi state that the version that Hitler gave uh, was the official version that is in the history books. Let's get into it. So, the Battle of Courtrai occurred uh, around, starting around the 13th uh, through the 15th, 16th of October in 1918. Crucially for Hitler, the events we're talking about occurred on the 15th of October, 1918. So Hitler and his squad were gassed by some type of poison gas by the British troops, uh, with several in his unit dying, others suffering casualties, and Hitler going blind. That much is beyond dispute. What is in dispute is the type of gas that was used. The first version, uh, the first telling of events, comes from Hitler's Mein Kampf, and we will address it soon. The other two events come from a man named Ignaz Westenkircher, who was another company runner who worked closely with Hitler and was right next to him uh, on that day. So the first version comes from a formal interview with him, which reads as follows. Not long after they had started eating, artillery fire began, and before the men fully realized what was happening, blasting grenades mixed with gas grenades were raining down. One gas grenade detonated with the well-known dull thud immediately in front of the army kitchen. 
The cook screamed, gas alert, but it was too late. Most of the comrades had already inhaled the devilish mixture of the yellow cross grenades and stumbled away coughing and panting. They hardly made it back to the bombed-out house in whose cellar they had been living when they began to lose their eyesight, and the mucous membranes of their mouths and throats became so inflamed that they were unable to speak. Their eyes were terribly painful, as if red-hot needles had been stuck into them. On top of that, their eyes would no longer open, and they had to lift their eyelids by hand to discover that all they could make out were the outlines of large objects. Six of them, among whom was Adolf Hitler, scrambled to the assembly point for casualties, where they lost contact with one another due to their blindness. Hitler ended up in Passewalk in Pomerania. The war had ended for all of them. And as we can tell, many of the stories from World War I, of course, are quite harrowing. Uh, as a side note, the term Yellow Cross was a term that the German troops used to describe mustard gas due to the markings on the gas canisters. So in the second shorter account, uh, we'll see that it was more frank, uh, shorter, more concise. And this is probably because it was told by Weston Kirshner to a pro-Nazi writer as an anecdote rather than a formal statement on the record. And I read it as follows. All of a sudden, the bombardment slackened off, and in place of shells came a queer, pungent smell. Word flew through the trenches that the English were attacking with chlorine gas. Hitherto, we hadn't experienced this sort of gas, but now we got a thorough dose of it. About seven next morning, Hitler was dispatched with an order to our rear. Dropping with exhaustion, he staggered off. His eyes were burning, sore, and smarting. Gas, he supposed, or dog weariness. Anyhow, they rapidly got worse. The pain was hideous. Presently, he could see nothing but a fog. Stumbling and falling over again and again, he made what feeble progress he could. The last time, all his failing strength was exhausted in freeing himself from the mask. He could struggle no more. His eyes were searing coals. Hitler had collapsed. Goodness only knows how long it was before the stretchers, stretcher bearers found him out. They brought him in. Hitler ended up in Passewalk in Pomerania. Now, let's talk about the differences. For one thing, Hitler was not struck immediately blind in the second account. And for another thing, the type of gas mentioned is different. Chlorine gas rather than mustard gas. Now, it might be worth going through a few of the different types of poison gases that the British were using at the time. There was Red Star, Yellow Star, White Star, and other types as well. Red Star was chlorine gas. Yellow Star was mustard gas. White Star was a mixture of chlorine gas and other types of gases. There were other rare gases that would also be able to paralyze people. The problem is that chlorine gas is somewhat less likely to blind its victims uh, rather than just killing them outright, while mustard gas often did cause blindness. Vestin Kirshner did not know for certain which type of gas was used and mentioned yellow cross in one story, chlorine gas in another. Clearly, we should look at what Hitler had to say, which is a sentence I never thought I would say. In Mein Kampf, Hitler says, in the night from October 13th to October 14th, the English began to throw gas on the southern front of Ypres. Yellow cross gas was being used, the effects of which were unknown to us so far as personal experience was concerned. 
I was to get to know it very personally on this night. On the eve of October 13th, on a hill south of Vervik, we had come under a drum fire of gas shells lasting several hours, which continued more or less violently throughout the entire night. Towards midnight, a part of us passed out, some of our comrades forever. Towards morning, I too was seized with pains which grew worse with every quarter hour, and towards seven o'clock in the morning, I stumbled and tottered rearward with burning eyes, but taking with me my last report in the war. Already a few hours later, my eyes had turned into burning coals. It had become dark around me. Thus, I was brought into the hospital at Pasevalk in Pomerania. Hitler asserts that it was yellow cross mustard gas, but makes it clear that he slept the night and then went blind. This matches with one of the stories from Vestin Kirchner, and this delay would not necessarily be inconsistent with mustard gas blindness. British war records are not clear on which gas was used, although it is probable that white star gas was used, uh, which again is a mixture of chlorine gas mixed with other compounds. German army records simply record poison gas, so that doesn't clarify things either. To get a better and clearer picture, we need to look at his immediate treatment and his time at Pasewalk. We get an early indication that Hitler was suffering from psychosomatic blindness, which was then called hysterical blindness, because he was separated from his unit and then sent to Pasewalk. This happened for two reasons. First, he did not exhibit any signs of physical damage to his eyes. And when the military medical authorities believed they were encountering a hysterical illness, they would separate the soldier, as they believed uh, that hysterical symptoms actually would spread from soldier to soldier. The German army believed that Hitler was suffering from what they called hysterical amblyopia. These hysterical illnesses were a plague during World War I, with psychology still being in its infancy, while the butchery of industrial warfare was reaching new levels of barbarity. There's a quote here about hysterical illnesses during World War I. The suspicion will always be there that the patient is in fact malingering. The final distinction between hysterical blindness and malingering is almost impossible to make. Still, the military doctors at this stage withheld making a final diagnosis because malingering was a serious offense, and Hitler had already received the Iron Cross at this time. It was not unheard of that a good soldier would still fall victim to different hysterical illnesses, but the assumption that it was a hysterical illness uh, didn't necessarily fall on soldiers who had already distinguished themselves. Not quite as readily, at least. Additionally, the medical doctors that first saw Hitler were not uh, experts in neurology and wanted to uh, send him along to a specialist to see if he couldn't recover. The other soldiers in Hitler's squad, uh, they all received normal medical treatment at a military hospital in Brussels, uh, while Hitler was sent to Passevalk. What is Passevalk? It was a specialized lazarette or clinic for the treatment of what we would call neurological problems. When Hitler arrived at Passevalk, he was seen by a Dr. Karl Kroner. Dr. Kroner was a physician who was himself temporarily blinded by gas at the Battle of Verdun. 
Dr. Kroner determined that Hitler had not received physical damage to his eyes, but that Hitler had suffered from conversion hysteria. Conversion hysteria was the theory that intense anxiety could be converted into specific symptoms, frequently involving the loss of a physical function. Dr. Kroner recommended that Hitler should be treated by the clinic's top neurologist, Dr. Edmund Forster. We will catch up with Dr. Carl Kroner later, but now let's talk about Dr. Edmund Forster. Dr. Edmund Forster, despite his British-sounding name, was a German psychiatrist who studied under various tutors like Carl Furstner, a pioneering professor of psychiatry, Richard Ivald, a pioneering physiologist, and Emil Krapelin, the father of experimental psychology. Dr. Forster studied at the Institute for Experimental Psychology, which was the world's first psychological laboratory. Dr. Forster was about as well-positioned and educated to treat Hitler as anyone in the world could have possibly been at the time. Dr. Forster compared war hysteria to what they called railway brain, which was a diagnosis that came from clinical observations of railway accident survivors made during the 1880s by Hermann Oppenheim, Germany's top neurologist at the time. While apparently uninjured, railway crash victims would frequently display tremors, tics, stutters, and partial paralyses identical to those now present among soldiers during World War I. They thought that the impact of a train accident caused tiny injuries to the brain or nervous system, and the thinking at the time was that artillery was causing these same tiny injuries to the brain, which is to say shell shock. Unfortunately, psychology was arguably still in the dark ages at the time. The field had not advanced much beyond when Freud said, My therapeutic arsenal contained only two weapons, electrotherapy and hypnotism. The German army kept accidentally killing soldiers with electroshock therapy by trying to treat their hysteria, so they were banned from using electroshock. That left the only other tool at their disposal, which is to say hypnotism. So Dr. Max Nohn, a German neurologist, tried to treat psychosomatic muteness with hypnotism. Uh, he did that back in 1914 and found that it actually works. Dr. Nohn was asked to treat a lieutenant who was recently evacuated from Flanders. This lieutenant appeared to have been struck dumb. Dr. Nohn suspected that the source of the young officer's muteness was psychological rather than physical in origin. The doctor decided to attempt hypnosis, which was something he had not used previously on a hysterical patient. He doubted that it would have much effect. To his surprise, the moment he placed the man in a trance and instructed him to speak, uh, the patient immediately regained the power of speech. Dr. Max Nohn discovered that patients suffering from hysteria were actually extremely responsive to hypnosis. He asserted that, quote, given sufficient time and effort, Anybody can be put in a trance, and failure to induce an altered state of consciousness mainly occurs when therapists use the same script for each person. This sometimes happens when conducting research into hypnosis because it ensures that every subject receives a more or less identical treatment. Unfortunately, because everyone is different, this off-the-peg approach won't work. To be effective, hypnotherapists must tailor their procedures 
to the individual needs of their clients in order to enable them to enter a trance in their own way. Dr. Known developed four rules of hypnosis. The first and most critical is the therapist's own confidence in the procedure. Second, patients must make themselves entirely subordinate to the hypnotist's will. Third, the surroundings in which the hypnosis takes place are important. And fourth, the hypnosis must mold the induction to meet the needs and expectations of the patient. The psychologist, professor, and Rhodes Scholar... We will get to Rhodes Scholars uh, at a later date. George Estabrook said, The key to hypnotism is suggestion. The subject left to himself does nothing. The hypnotic state may change to normal sleep and he will awaken, always open to suggestions, but quite incapable of acting on his own initiative. Let's talk about the interaction between Dr. Forster and Hitler. Before Foster met Hitler, he knew that Hitler was busy raving about the Jews to the other patients. Forster developed a plan for treatment by using a tremendous lie. On the 6th of November in 1918, Dr. Edmund Forster ordered Hitler to his consulting room and guided him into an upright chair before a table on which stood two lit candles. After examining the patient's eyes carefully, Forster replaced the instruments in his case and blew out the candles. Your eyes have been terribly damaged, he told him regretfully. I should never have assumed that you, a pure Aryan, a good soldier, a knight of the Iron Cross, first class, would lie or deceive. Everyone has to accept their lot. The individual is powerless where fate is concerned. Miracles do not happen anymore. He paused before adding more optimistically. But that goes only for the average person. Miracles still happen frequently to chosen people. There have to be miracles and great people before whom nature bows, don't you agree? As you say, doctor, Hitler meekly agreed. I am no charlatan, no performer of miracles, Dr. Forster went on. I am a simple doctor, but maybe you yourself have the rare power that occurs only once every millennium to perform a miracle. Jesus did this, Muhammad, the saints. I could show you the method by which you could see again, despite the fact that your eyes have been damaged by mustard gas. With your symptoms, an ordinary person would be blind for life. But for a person with exceptional strength of willpower and spiritual energy, there are no limits. Scientific assumptions do not apply to that person. The spirit removes any such barrier. In your case, the thick white layer in your cornea, but maybe you do not possess this power to perform miracles. How can I tell, said Hitler. Do you trust yourself to my willpower, Forster demanded. Then, before Hitler could reply, Forster ordered him to open his eyes wide. I will light the candle with a match. Did you see the sparks? I don't know, Hitler responded uncertainly. Not a light, but a kind of a white round shimmer. You must have absolute faith in yourself. Then you will stop being blind, Forster told Hitler. You know that Germany now needs people who have energy and faith in themselves. I know that, Hitler stood up trembling and held on to the edge of the table. Listen, I have two candles here, one on the left and one on the right. You must see. Do you see them? I am beginning to see, Hitler said. If only it was possible. For you... 
anything is possible. God will help you if you help yourself. In every human being is a part of God. That is the will, the energy. Gather your strength. More, more, more. Good. Now it is enough. What do you see now? I see your face, your hand, and your ring, your white coat, the newspaper on the table, and the notes about me. Sit down, Dr. Forster told him, and take a rest. You have been cured. You have made yourself see. You have behaved like a man. You managed to put light in your eyes because of your willpower. Dr. Forster rose and walked around the room. Hitler followed him with his eyes just as a normal person would with normal vision. He looked at the table and tried to decipher the doctor's notes. Later, Dr. Forster wrote, Everything happened as I wanted it to. I had played fate, played God, and restored sight to a blind insomniac. Dr. Edmund Forster felt professionally satisfied by the successful outcome of his unorthodox treatment. What he failed to appreciate was that in restoring Hitler's sight, he had implanted in his brain the conviction that he had been chosen by destiny for some special mission. By failing to remove the hypnotic suggestion he had firmly planted in the Lance Corporal's mind, Hitler would believe that every step he took from then on was dictated by a supernatural power. Unless I have incorruptible conviction, I do nothing, Hitler once explained to his colleagues. I will not act, I will not wait, no matter what happens. But if the voice speaks, then I know the time has come to act. So, the exchange that I just read was from a novel called The Eyewitness, written by a Czech novelist named Ernst Weiss, who was a friend of Franz Kafka. This novel was written in 1938. That passage is not an exact record of Dr. Forster's treatment of Hitler. Nobody has Hitler's Krankenblatt, or patient's chart. I don't like to play practical jokes on you, dear listener, but I do have my reasons, which we will get to, I promise. We will keep on trucking. Hitler actually suffered a second bout of blindness upon hearing of Germany's surrender, further bolstering the theory that this was actually hysterical blindness. And it also strains credulity to believe that he had real blindness the first time, was treated at a neurological clinic for real blindness, and then got hysterical blindness for the first time. No, it was, both cases were hysterical blindness. Hitler, of course, left and went on to achieve fame and infamy, as we all know. Dr. Forster went on to an illustrious career. Interestingly, he began to pioneer research into mescaline. He was tripping on mescaline before Dr. Albert Hoffman discovered LSD. We will get into Dr. Forster's later career uh, in a little bit. Let's revisit Dr. Karl Kroner, the doctor who initially examined Hitler when he arrived at Passivalk. So Dr. Karl Kroner was actually a Jew, which became a major problem after the Nazis came to power. Dr. Kroner had to stop practicing medicine the day after Kristallnacht, and he was ultimately sent to Orienburg concentration camp fairly early on in this whole situation. The Danish embassy was actually able to secure his release due to his many prominent friends in Iceland, Iceland, of course, being administered and represented by Denmark at that time. Dr. Kroner was released and able to flee to Iceland. From Iceland, uh, they emigrated to the United States. It was in the United States that Dr. Kroner 
wrote a report for the U.S. Naval Intelligence reporting on Hitler's treatment at Passewalk. This report was titled, Adolf Hitler's Blindness, a Psychological Study, and I read it almost in full. When the First World War came to an end, Adolf Hitler, as he was then, was not at the front. He was in a military hospital in the small town of Passewalk in Pomerania. According to the version given in Nazi literature in the 1920s, he had gone blind as a result of gas poisoning. We are not told, however, how long he remained in the hospital after the armistice. It cannot have been long, for soon after he turned up in Munich, where he was employed as a sort of spy of the military league, to report to them the activities of the working class political movement. We are also not told what after effects, if any, his eyesight uh, was left behind by the blindness. Interjection on my part here. We are going to address in a future episode the concept, Hitler as spy. Back to the report. This is remarkable for everyone knows blindness is not normally cured without a trace. Nothing is known, however, of any permanent after effects in Hitler's case. In the numerous photographs which we have of him, he always has the same studied hypnotic stare, which is familiar to us from his prototype Mussolini. There is no recorded example of gas poisoning having had so favorable an outcome. Professor Forster, at the time, head doctor at the Berlin University Nerve Clinic and consultant neurologist to the military hospital at Passewalk, declared Adolf Hitler to be a psychopath with hysterical symptoms. This became known in spite of all subsequent efforts to hush it up. It became apparent at an early period that Adolf Hitler comes into this category. His blindness was cured, but Germany became so blind that she chose him to be chancellor. Then in 1933 came the tragic ending to the story. Naturally, it was important that it should not become known what a pitiful part Adolf Hitler had played in the hospital at Passewalk and what the diagnosis of his illness had been. The story of this episode was hushed up by, by well-known methods. Already from about the beginning of the 1930s, no further mention had been made of it. But this alone was not enough. The still surviving witnesses of the incident must be silenced. This was simplest in the case of Hitler's former company Sergeant Major Amon. He was bought by being appointed Hitler's business manager uh, of the entire German press. Through this position, Herr Amon had acquired a large fortune by highly disreputable methods. He is today a millionaire many times over. Foster, meanwhile, had become head of the Faculty of Medicine at Griefswald University, and he was not a man who could be bought. He had, therefore, to be silenced by other means. Shortly after Hitler came to power, Professor Forster suddenly died. The cause of death was given as suicide. At the time, doubts were felt, and these have grown to certainty, as the Professor Forster was a man of excellent health in the best years of his life, cheerful and successful in his career. Nothing was known which could have driven him to suicide. In short, there can be no doubt to the mind of anyone well acquainted with Nazi methods that Professor Forster was murdered and that the supposed suicide was a carefully arranged deception. That's right. Shortly after the Nazis seized power in 1933, Dr. Forster committed suicide. Now I can hear you, dear listeners, shouting at your speakers right now, asking, but did he try to warn the world about Hitler? Well, folks, so... Passewalk's 
medical files on all patients have disappeared. It's not clear whether they were destroyed by the Nazis, misplaced, destroyed by accident, or what. But Dr. Forster actually kept personal files on his more interesting and notable cases, and Hitler was definitely an interesting and notable patient. When the Nazis seized power, Dr. Forster realized that he needed to speak out. He began first by talking to his colleagues, telling various doctors about Hitler. Then, heeding their advice, he was introduced to Dr. Alfred Dublin, a neurologist who also wrote a famous novel, Berlin Alexanderplatz. Dublin was on the left, and he was opposed to the Nazis, so he was therefore forced into exile in France. Dr. Forster met with Dublin about the hysterical blindness, and he wrote out copies of Hitler's patient chart. We know where one copy was placed by Forster. Forster put a copy in a Swiss safety deposit box. Dr. Forster also planned to leak medical information on Hermann Göring and Bernhard Rust. Hermann Göring, of course, was high up in the Nazi party. He was head of the Luftwaffe. And as an aside, uh, just... Uh, for a bit of color, I actually found out that he uh, personally brought back execution by axe when the Nazis came to power. Goring was a morphine addict, and that's what Forster was going to leak. Goring, of course, was later put on trial at Nuremberg and would have received the death penalty, but managed to take poison and kill himself before that could happen. Bernhard Rust was Minister of Science, Education, and National Culture. So he was basically an axe man in charge of overhauling all education in Germany and realigning it to suit Nazi purposes. He was also literally a pedophile, and that fact Forster was also going to leak. Shortly after the Nazis came to power, Forster faced a poison pen letter campaign and smear campaign for his anti-Nazi views. Forster was basically a German liberal and was not particularly anti-Nazi as such, so the campaign was probably more about his dirt on Hitler than any anti-fascist sentiments per se. Due to the smear campaign, Dr. Forster was brought up on these insane charges. They actually do have the entire transcript of the trial. It's much too long to get into, but it was essentially a kangaroo court, and he was forced to retire on a three-fourths pension. Dr. Forster had just had his professional life ruined, so it is actually possible that Dr. Forster may have chosen to kill himself in order to preserve the pension, collect life insurance, and save his family. There are anomalies with the murder, or suicide, uh, but I don't find it terribly important to focus on the details here today. He was murdered by the Nazi regime one way or another, whether they literally shot him or forced him to commit suicide. Uh, both models fit their modus operandi. So the Nazis murdered so many people. They executed thousands and thousands, and they did, in fact, stage many suicides. Also, lest you think I'm just making this up, a British historian and professor at Aberdeen, uh, Thomas Weber, said, quote, Nazi authorities lost no time in putting down with an iron fist any such challenges to Hitler's legitimacy. Anyone questioning Hitler's story about the First World War experience was immediately targeted and silenced. Unquote. 
So there are a long list of suspected stage suicides uh, perpetuated by the Nazis. The most clear-cut one probably is a man named uh, Eric Musam, who was a communist novelist who also happened to be set to that same concentration camp, Orienburg. Uh, and I read a quote here about what he experienced. His glasses were smashed and his teeth knocked out. He developed cauliflower ear with a large blister coming out of his ear hole. He was left for eight days without medical attention. On another occasion, he was forced to dig his own grave. He was stood against the wall, making him believe he would be shot. Then they ordered him to sing the Nazi horsed vessel song. Instead, Musam sang the Internationale, the communist song. Then he was savagely beaten. Later, he warned his companions that they should not believe any claim that he committed suicide. On the 10th of July, 1934, Musam was ordered to report to the guardroom, where the SS handed him a rope and said, You have until morning to hang yourself. You understand clearly what I mean. That is, to hang yourself by the neck. If you don't carry out this order, we will do it ourselves. The following morning, he was found hanging in a latrine. His feet were dangling in the hole of the latrine. The knot was skillfully tied in a manner which the half-blind Musam, who had broken thumbs at the time, could not have possibly accomplished. There aren't words to follow that. So, Hitler, of course, faced rivals from all over the political compass. Uh, he did, of course, face challenges from the right. And there were people like uh, General Kurt von Schleicher, who was a political rival to Hitler. When Hitler seized power, uh, General Schleicher obtained Hitler's medical file in order to use it and to go against the Nazis. Unfortunately, General Schleicher didn't use the file immediately and tried to hold on to it until a more advantageous time. On the 30th of July in 1933, six SS men showed up at General Schleicher's house and gunned him down in his study. General Schleicher had also shown General von Bredow the medical file. General von Bredow was shot in the head at point-blank range in circumstances that I guess you could call suspicious. Spy agencies often recruit people with something shameful that they can then control. Hitler would, would have been an ideal recruit because of his psychosomatic illness. It would have been the very first thing Hitler would have gone after after coming into power, which, as we see, is exactly what they did. Just outright assassinating generals uh, is what I think they would call a risky move when you seize power. Uh, there are reasons to do it, but I think that you can make the case that there would have to be a very good reason, like, say, that that general has a file suggesting that the Fuhrer had suffered hysterical blindness. So during the reign of the Nazis, the Passivalk Clinic was converted into a fascist monument and tourist attraction. It was demolished within weeks of the Soviets taking the town, and they rebuilt it into a sports pavilion which stands to this day. Now let's go back and talk about that passage that I read about Hitler's hypnosis. The passage from the novel The Eyewitness by Ernst Weiss, the Czech novelist. I never mean to deceive you, dear listener, and I do mean that. The novelist Weiss, he was actually given one of Dr. Forster's copies of Hitler's patient chart. 
The scene depicted in the novel is believed to have been written using Dr. Forster's patient chart. There are numerous accounts from Doblin, as well as the poet Walter Mehring, the novelist Leopold Schwarzschild, and Ernst Weiss, where they all talked extensively with Dr. Forster and received that patient file. As well, that same British historian I mentioned before, Thomas Weber, discovered letters from two American neurologists who spoke with a German neurologist, Ottfried Forster, who also read the file back in 1932. Still, this raises a fair question. Why did Weiss choose to put this in a novel rather than publish the file? Well, for one thing, the German press would just not touch the matter with a 10-foot pole. Uh, No one was being critical of Hitler at that point, and they could not have been. Uh, Although he wrote it in 1938, Weiss's novel was not published until 1963, for reasons that would become clear soon. Third, there has long been a tie between novels and espionage, and it's a complicated one that works on many different levels. Uh, And there's countless, countless examples from well before Ian Fleming, who was, of course, a spy, to J.D. Salinger, who was a spy, and whose novels have probably been used for uh, unclear mind control purposes, to E. Howard Hunt, who wrote pulp novels, to all the weird resonances of Thomas Pynchon's novels, many, many, many more that I've left out. Uh, I think you could say that there's value in the ability to publish things that don't meet journalistic burdens of proof, or to say things that journalists are not allowed to say. I will read a passage now from Vice's Last Days. Soon after 7 a.m. on June 14, 1940, the German city invaded in Paris. An estimated 2 million refugees fled the city. Those who remained watched notices being posted in cinemas, bars, restaurants, and even brothels, reserving them for German soldiers. A sign on the Chamber of Deputies read, Deutschland siegt auf allen Fronten, or Germany wins on all fronts. That morning, a terrified and disconsolate Weiss watched the heavily armed Wehrmacht troops parading along the Champs-Élysées. With tears in his eyes, he saw the swastika raised atop the Arc de Triomphe and fluttering in the breeze above the Eiffel Tower. As dusk descended over the city, Weiss returned to the Hotel Trion and listened to the stamp of jackboots parading on the street below his window. In America, Eleanor Roosevelt and Thomas Mann were working to secure him safe passage across the Atlantic, but he hadn't heard word in months. Taking out his pen, he wrote a farewell letter to his friends, ending with the words, Vive la France quand même. After running a bath, he swallowed some sleeping pills, and, lying naked in warm water, slashed his wrists with a straight razor. In his misery, he bungled the job. His death was, from all accounts, slow and agonizing. It was also unnecessary, too, because the American embassy had just approved his visa, and a ticket to New York City awaited him. Several months earlier, he had written the lines, With the years going by, emptiness is growing around me. I am still living, feeling, having desire and hopes. I do not fear death itself, but I dread the hour when, out of exhaustion, there is no more hope left within me for anything. I think the final word should go to Ernst Weiss. 
So in terms of sources, I drew much of this from David Lewis's book, Triumph of the Will, How Two Men Hypnotized Hitler and Changed the World. I also utilized Mein Kampf and the U.S. Naval Intelligence Report. And I should mention, by the way, that that U.S. Naval Intelligence Report was only declassified in 1973. I just want to thank you for listening. Uh, It really makes me feel good to know that so many people are listening. If you liked the content today, just show it to a friend. I promise there's more good stuff coming up in the future. And I need to get on my way. I'm headed to Berlin, where I'll take in the sights and see an old vaudeville theater, La Scala. Thank you, and God bless.